This is the message given by Pastor Peter Sim during the evening worship service at Faith Presbyterian Church, Long Beach, California, for January 7th, 2024. The title of the message is Praying for Power. Uh, well, let's uh, open up our Bibles, and we're going to go to uh, Acts chapter 20, verse 36 through 38. And then just stick your finger in there, and then we're going to go to the uh, few more chapter, few more books later to Ephesians chapter three, verses fourteen to twenty-one. And the focus of today's message will be verses sixteen to eighteen, or sixteen to nineteen. So Acts chapter twenty, verses thirty-six to thirty-eight. This is the reading of God's holy word. Give careful and reverent attention to it. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Uh, to give us a little bit of context of uh, Paul's relationship to the Ephesians, uh, and just how close uh, they actually were uh, with one another, that um, these, uh, the, the church at Ephesus was very, very close uh, to Paul. And, and so to give some context as Paul is going to pray uh, for the uh, church at Ephesus. So let's go to Ephesians now, uh, chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Uh, beginning with verse 14. Uh, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Well, with the Lord's Supper today, uh, we're just going to get right, right to the passage. Uh, and so, um, really, from verses 14 to 19, right, from verses 14 to 19, we're, we're sticking to Ephesians, uh, Ephesians chapter uh, 3. Uh, from verses 14 to 19, it's really just one long sentence. Right? And it contains the entire prayer. Uh, verses 20 to 21 is what we might call the uh, doxology or a sort of a concluding blessing uh, that in a way kind of caps off the prayer uh, at, the, at the end of the prayer. And, and this is Paul just praising God uh, at the conclusion of this prayer. I mean, he's just so, uh, just so thrilled in a sense uh, as he brings this request to God. Uh, and so he concludes it that prayer with verses 20 to 21. 
Now, what I want us to see is that with this prayer, uh, there's, there's actually uh, three things that Paul's asking for. Okay, there's three things. And in, uh, there, there's one petition. Uh, Paul asked God for, for three things. And, and there's uh, one specific petition in each of these clauses. And, and, and uh, it's a little bit harder to see it in, in English. But if you notice, if you look at verse 16, uh, you'll, you'll skip over verse 16. You'll see there is that word at the beginning of verse 16, that, right, that. Uh, that is that, and then he lays off one request, and then you'll notice in verse 18, it, it's sort of implied, and, and some might translate, if you notice in the middle of verse 17 where it says with that, um, I just forgot what the word is, um, that bar, uh, that then says that you being rooted and grounded in love, there's this sort of implied that, that, you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. And then it goes on until finally you get to the middle of verse 19, and you'll notice again, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So uh, you'll see that there are three requests uh, that he is making. And uh, you'll see that with verse 16 and 17, right? the, the, way, uh, the way that you'll see these requests, and, and uh, imagine kind of this picture that, that Paul's actually creating with his words here. Uh, with verse 16 and, and uh, 17, uh, think of it as a staircase. And so, there, well, there were a couple staircases here. But, but imagine a staircase, and, and uh, what would, at the bottom of the staircase, uh, would it be small or big? Right? At the bottom of the staircase, it's going to be the largest piece. Right? So it will be this large uh, staircase. Uh, and that's verses 16 and 17. Then you get... A little bit higher to the second staircase, you get verse 18 and, and part of 19. It's a little shorter, but you're a step higher. And in that sense, imagine this, this uh, idea of where Paul is, is saying, uh, he brings out this incredible prayer, first petition with verse 16 and 17. And then as you get to that next um, step on the, on, on the staircase, it, it, it kind of takes you a little bit higher. And it's like, whoa, here, here's that second petition. Wow, this is even more incredible. Uh, and it's a little bit shorter, right? It's a little bit shorter. But then when you get to the third petition, you get to the top of the staircase with verse 19. It's the shortest phrase, but it is the most incredible request here. It's the most incredible petition. So you have, again, uh, this, this really incredible petition with the, with the first one in verse 16 and 17, and it's the longest worded one, but then you get a shorter petition in verse 18 and 19, but it's an even incredible ask, and then you get the final third one that's like, wow, this is really? Uh, and so uh, maybe some of you are already like, oh, what's that third one? That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Like, I don't know. I mean, what's, what's this incredible ask that Paul's uh, making here? Well, hopefully as, as we're uh, working through this, that uh, you'll really see just why it's what Paul is praying for. Uh, it really, really is just incredible, incredible petitions. And as I said, verses 20 to 21, uh, it, it caps off the entire prayer. Uh, it caps off the entire prayer with this uh, really just amazing, um, just amazing praise uh, to God. So again, as, as, as we're going to take a look at this, um, our, our tendency, however, is, is as much as I'm, I'm saying, oh, this is an incredible petition and, and what he's asking uh, from God, I think part of the problem is our tendency, though, 
is to be very limiting of God. And, and so how many times, and uh, against New Year, and it's like, oh, yay. But how often do we, we ask God, but, but do we, I mean, do we really expect God to answer them? It, it, I think in some ways we tend to uh, just sort of ask him. He may or may not answer. Eh. And, and sometimes it's this, uh, we, we take a holy approach to it and say, well, if you will, Lord. And, and really by that, we're saying, well, I'm, I'm not going to raise my expectations too much. I, I, I don't want to be disappointed. And, and so... Uh, but, but that's not what Paul's doing here. And, and you have to understand, as, as Paul's praying this for people, people that he loves dearly, people that it's very obvious from Acts, um, from Acts 20 that uh, they love Paul very dearly. There's a very deep and intimate relationship. And so for Paul to be asking these things, the expectation is through the roof. This is not Paul just saying, well, you know, you know I'm, could you do this? And you know, if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. There is, is this deep, high expectations. And, and I think we need to, in that sense, adjust things. Just because God may not answer it in the timing that we want, just because God may say, no, this isn't the time, or, or um, it may not even be in your lifetime. Uh, I think I mentioned this last time. Uh, it may not be in your lifetime that these prayers are, are uh, answered. Uh, it may be a generation, maybe two or three generations later when those prayer requests that you've been praying for for 20, 30, 40 years uh, that eventually get answered. Uh, and so when we, when we think of and, and realize that, uh, again, we, we don't want to say, well, God's not really going to answer this. Have the expectation that God is going to answer it. Have the expectation that, uh, yes, God, uh, I am, I'm bringing all these requests to you. Would you hear them? You may say no. That's okay. That. Like It's not just about getting those answered per se, but, but really what we're saying is, Lord, uh, I want to see your glory be filled through all of this. Like As I bring my request to you, I want you to answer them, but if you don't, I, I, I put it all before you. You're God, I'm not God. You're God, I'm not God, and so my trust is in how you're going to uh, fulfill that. So uh, let's, let's, let's take a look at these, uh, these asks that, that Paul makes. And so the first thing that Paul uh, does here, the first thing that he does here with verses 16 to 18 or 16 and 17, is Paul asked for power. Right? Especially in a culture, our culture, their culture at that time. Right? During their time, it, it, it has a lot more to do with uh, incantations and magical powers. Ephesus was a very, uh, it was that kind of city, that kind of area where uh, people were doing uh, magic and, and just really in that kind of spiritual, uh, new ages sort of stuff. Um, even in our day, right? You, you think, well, power, right? And, and uh, the imbalance of power, boy, you're in a position of power. And, and, and so it's very odd to hear Paul's actually praying for power, right? He's asking uh, the Ephesians, uh, he's asking God to give the Ephesians power. But we need to understand what, what sort of power are we talking about here, right? Uh, because we can, again, we, we can assume that the kind of power that, that when we think of power, we think, oh, wow, yeah, the power to uh, the ability, the, 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 the strength and the ability to accomplish amazing feats like run a Fortune 500 company, right? The power to be this, this incredible parent, right? The power for, uh, to accomplish world peace, to end hunger. Well, what Paul's actually doing here is he's saying, think bigger, <laughs> Think bigger than any of those things. 
See, and what Paul, what he wants, the kind of power that he's talking about here is Paul is saying that the inner man would be empowered, would be given this power, would, would be emboldened. Paul is asking for the Holy Spirit to empower this inner being of the Ephesians. Right? And, and this kind of language here is, is found in 2 Corinthians 4 as well, this inner man and outer man. Uh, and, and the idea here is that the outer man, that's everything that we could see here, right? When we look at one another, we see the outer man. The inner man is, is more about the core being, like, like what makes me me, right? Not just physically outside, but that inner sense of, of who I am, what makes me unique, uh, in a sense, uh, almost like my, my, my soul, sometimes we might say it that way, um, that, that inner being of, of, of who I am, what makes me me, Paul is, is asking that the Spirit would uh, give, that, that God would give us this power. And, and, and he, he's saying very specific things about this. And the first thing he's saying is that in our inner being of, of, of who we are, of what we are as humans in, in God's image, that, that Paul is asking, oh God, would you dwell in their hearts? Would you dwell in their hearts? And when you hear this, you're thinking, well, wait a minute. Isn't God already, aren't, aren't these believers, isn't God already in them? Right? It, what do you mean, Paul, that, that, that Christ, that, that, that you would dwell in their hearts? See, what Paul's asking here is similar to what Jesus actually does in Revelation 3.20. And, and there's these famous paintings that, that depict Jesus knocking on the door. In Revelation 3.20, Jesus is knocking on the door and he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, understand that when Jesus says this, he's speaking to the church. He's not speaking to unbelievers. He's speaking to believers. He's saying, I'm knocking at your door. I'm knocking on the door of your heart. And what, 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 what Jesus is saying here is, open your door that we might sit down and break bread together, that we might eat together, that we might have an intimate time together. In the same way, what Paul is praying for is that Christ would dwell in the hearts of the people in such a way, in such a way, this sort of dwelling, in such a way that it would be the most intimate of times. And you have to understand that this language of dwell in verse 17, right? this, this language of dwell, it's a very unique word that Paul uses here. And, and so you have, you're seeing kind of Paul building up. He says that Christ would dwell in their hearts. He could have used a, a very other, more common word, but he doesn't do that. He says dwell. And this word dwell is a word that's used to describe a person who stays in a home long term. As opposed to the word that could have been used, that is more often would, would have been used, is a word that's, that, that kind of gives more of the impression of um, staying in a hotel. And, and so think about that. When you stay in a hotel, right, and depending if, if let's, let's say, uh, if you're traveling and you're traveling and, and you have a layover and, and maybe it's in a hotel, do you unpack everything? Are, are you going to unzip your entire suitcase and, and take everything out? Like, it's just like... One night, you, gotta, uh, you go in at, like, let's say, 11 o'clock at night, and you're going to have to get up at 5 in the morning. Right? You're, you're only there for a few hours. You're really there just to sleep. You're not going to unpack everything. 
You're there as a guest, right? You're not going to, as I said, you're not going to unpack. And, and so in that sense, are you going to, you're just going to sleep in the, in the bed and go? Brush your teeth, okay. But, but um, you're not really going to be there if, if the, um, you know, let, let, let's say the TV is arranged over here. Uh, are you going to start remodeling things? Are, are you going to buy a, a picture, frame it in the hotel room? I mean, are, are you, you going to redecorate? Right? You're not going to do any of these sorts of things. And you have to understand when Paul uses this language of dwell, that there's this whole concept uh, that, that's understood here. It's a very, very specific word uh, referring to permanent residence. And so it, it's much more than just stopping by. Paul is praying that our inner beings will be so strengthened, that will be so empowered to such an extent that Christ would settle down, live in our, in our very being, in our very core, in such a way that he's going to begin remodeling dramatically and drastically in our lives. See, Paul wants to see Christ. What he's praying for, as he is praying for the Ephesians, he's saying, Christ, would you dwell in their hearts in such a way, would you dwell in their inner being, in their inner core, in such a dramatic fashion that you're going to start ripping out the old toilets. You're going to rip out the sinks. You're going to just install new lights, new walls, new cabinets. Paul is, is praying for this utter transformation in the Ephesians. Like, like, this is what he's asked. This is what he wants to see happening. There's this great love for the Ephesians. And, and one of the greatest ways that Paul can pray for, uh, for loving these Ephesians is, Lord, enter into their lives in such a manner that you are going to completely remodel their life. A, a, an extreme makeover. Just a complete makeover for these Ephesians. Right? And, and that's our prayer, isn't it? That Christ would dwell not only in me, but as we pray for one another in such a way, Lord, that, that you would just completely remodel, just, just make a complete makeover in their life. Like we're asking for that, that, that incredible transformation. That's the first petition here. Right? That's the first petition here. Now, along with this first petition, it's sort of uh, at, at the end of verse 17 being rooted and grounded in love. Being rooted and grounded in love. Right? The last phrase of that petition, right? the kind of love being, being rooted, what, is, what, is that, what do you think of? Rooted like a tree, firmly planted by streams of water. Or grounded in love. The kind of love that is uh, like a temple, grounded, not like a tabernacle that, that could kind of fly away, given like the winds here even, right? It, it, it's so, it's unmovable. A tent versus this building here. That the love that the Ephesians would have, that they would be rooted and grounded in love. Rooted and grounded. Like a man as Ephesians 1 talks about, as one who, loving the Lord, loving his, his law, loving the things of God, that, that removes himself uh, from the seat of scoffers. Right, right, this, this sort of person that's just so rooted in the love of God, that's so rooted and grounded in the love of God. But one of the things that we have to understand is that this love here, 
right? When we look at uh, verse uh, 16 and verse 17, that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love for what? Rooted and grounded in love. It, it's, it's here, it's, it's not necessarily love for God per se, but it's love for his people. It's love and affection for God's people. And this is why it's, it's very important when we start thinking about this. Love for God's people. Whereas it's so much easier, especially given how messy people can be, it's much easier to isolate yourself. It's much easier to remove yourself from the company of God's people. Right? It's much easier to be on your own. Right? There may be certain people in the congregation, no one here, right? But there may be certain people in the congregation that you just, yeah, I'm, I'm just not, don't really like them. Paul is praying for this, the entire group of Ephesians. And one of the things that's going to break down and really, really root and ground you in love for God's people is to pray for them. Do you do that, right? It's especially, I mean, it's, it's, it's maybe it's much easier to pray for the people that you hold dearly, the people that you have affection for. I mean, it's, it's fantastic, one of the prayer requests that were brought up, right? That, that praise for God, that there was that reconciliation with neighbor. But the idea of, of praying for, for people, especially those, Lord, that you would empower this brother, this sister, that, that I am just not good terms with, Lord, that you would empower them, that you would really uh, just, just make a dwelling in their life to pray for that, to pray for that every day. Right? And you have to understand that, think about who he's praying to now, or as he's praying to God, uh, who he's praying for, we said the Ephesians, but what's part of the issue that the Ephesians had? If you go to chapter 2, there's this issue between Jews and Gentiles. And he spends the entire chapter, chapter 2, he spends that entire chapter talking about that these two diametrically opposed groups becoming one in Christ. This is an impossible task, the kind of impossibility that we might, I want to be careful of what sort of illustrations I use here, but, um, but you know, I, I'll, I'll, about as close to politics as I'll get here. But so, someone as far left as you can imagine and someone as far right as you can imagine. And to bring them together. To bring them together. And, and let's say you're on that far right, to the idea of praying for that person on the far left, Lord, that you would just make a dwelling in their life. Or if you're on the far left, and, and the idea of praying for the person that's on the far right, uh, one of those people, but, but to say, oh, Lord, that you would really, that your presence would be real in their life. See, and Paul's saying, this, this, this doesn't work by your own power. And that's why Paul, the first thing he's praying for is the power of God. We can't do this on our own. This is why we are praying and asking God to do this. See, we could create programs, we can create, uh, we just need a little more education. We just need a little bit more of this, a little bit more of that. We could do all sorts of things and say, this, this is going to make it happen. No, what Paul is making very clear, 
We can't accomplish this on our own, which is why we need to pray. Praying that God would give this power, that Christ would dwell in our hearts, in our inner beings, that we might be rooted and grounded in love for one another. This transformation can only take place with the power of God. By prayer, praying for it. Well, that's the first petition, and, and that's like, the, again, that, that first step on the ladder. Now he's taking us to that second step of the ladder. Right? Verse 18, um, right? to grasp, to know the love of Christ. Now, we hear this so often. I, I, unfortunately, I think sometimes uh, these things that come up in Scripture, it's, it's almost like white noise. Right? It's just that background noise you hear in the back. Uh, you turn it on, and, and you know, let's say like music in the background, you have no idea what's being said, what's, what's being sung, uh, but it's just going on, right? Um, or, or the static of the radio, the static of a television. I guess this kind of dates me. That's more like the 40 years ago. Maybe not so much nowadays. Uh, but um, right, this idea of, of knowing the love of Christ, right? the second petition, verse 18, you have to understand how astounding this request really is. That we would be given the strength to comprehend more deeply God's love. So not, again, not just God dwelling in you, but now to understand the extent of how much God loves you. And Paul says the breadth, the length, the height, the depth of this love that God has for you. And verse 19 actually then goes on to say that to know it in such a way that goes even beyond intellectually knowing it. Now, I'm going to read a couple of, of, of quotes here, but hopefully to kind of give you a little bit of, of a balance of understanding this. Uh, Herman Boving, uh, he, he's a uh, Dutch theologian from like the 1800s. Um, he writes this, uh, objective religion is identical with the revelation of God. And then he explains, Corresponding to this objective religion is the subjective, the fear of God. So he's talking about the objective and the subjective. To give you a little bit more to this, Tim Keller talks about in his book of forgiveness, forgiveness is granted, often a good while, before it is felt. Not felt before it is granted. The idea is that there's this objective understanding and then there's this subjective experience of that objective truth. So in other words, all of you know God loves me. You know that he loves you. You know he loves you because Jesus came into the world. Jesus died for my sins. He lived a life that I could not live. He suffered the punishment that so I wouldn't have to be punished. I know God loves me. But what about the subjective understanding of that? Right? This comprehension, this understanding of that truth that makes it so, again, deep within your bones. Where, where I'll put it this way, where you're feeling it. And let me give you two illustrations of this. Food reviews. Right, you see food reviews of restaurants. You, you, it, it, it used to be for some time... It, um, those food reviews were food critics on television. Like you have one or two, right? They have a whole show, 30 minutes of it. 
And then, you, and, and then it sort of progressed to things like Yelp, right? People would kind of type things in Yelp. And nowadays, it's, it's more like um, these influencers, you know, I'll, I'll throw the name out, maybe you younger ones will know, Keith Lee, right? No, oh man, <laughs> that tells you where my head is, okay. Um, Man, that just threw, threw me off here. Um, <laughs> but you have these, uh, you have these um, influencers, right? You have these reviewers of, of restaurants, and, and what they'll say is, this food is 9 out of 10. It's, it's absolutely delicious, right? And you're, you're, you're looking at it, right? You, you have your phone, you're looking at it, and maybe they're describing, this is the best hamburger in L.A. County, and, or, or cheeseburger in L.A. County, and, and this is how they make it. They even have pictures and, and video of, of how they smash the burger, and, and, and it's like three patties and, and cheese, and, and, and describing all these things, and you're seeing it, right? And you're like, wow, that looks really good. Okay. But it's different when you actually eat the food and you actually try the food. Or imagine a three-star Michelin restaurant. Like, I mean, it's like a $1,000 meal, and, and they're describing all the, and it looks incredible. It's like, wow, this is weird. This is uh, exciting. All these things, and, uh, look, and you can pair it with this wine or that wine. But it's a completely different experience when you actually try it. You see what Paul is getting at here is it's one thing to talk about it. It's one thing to hear about it. It's one thing to, uh, to, to even, in a sense, see it, see it. But it's another thing when you actually experience that. Again, you know God loves you. You've heard it. You've learned it. You've studied it. But what Paul is asking is that, Lord, that, that they would grasp even beyond their intellectual understanding of the breadth and depth and height of your love for them. Right, you young ones. Yeah, I know my mom and dad love me. But then there are those subjective times where, no, I don't think they love me. Right, and, and, and what the, the, this whole thing of, of, of that you could experience just at, at least for that moment where you could really understand just the extent of, of how much your parents love you. The extent of, of how much God really, really loves you. And see, unfortunately, sometimes when it comes to, uh, I, I think sometimes we, we get so uh, into theology in such a way where we're just interested in the, uh, the ins and outs. Sometimes we're like, oh, wow, this is how the Old Testament connects to Christ. Oh, this is really neat. Or, or we say, oh, this verse or that verse. And, and what, sometimes what it will do is it'll just fill us with a lot of knowledge, a lot of understanding. And, and, and that's wonderful. We need that objective reality. We need that truth. Because you can't sit there and say, like, oh, my parents love me. And you don't know who they are. Like, it doesn't work that way. Right? There's an objective truth and a subjective uh, experience that comes with that. right? And then that subjective experience comes with that objective uh, reality of it. Uh, another illustration here, and this is actually from Matt Chandler, where he talks about, uh, my wife loves me. I know, I know that. However, uh, if, if uh, and, and I, I guess it was an inside joke where the congregation understood this, uh, my wife has like blonde hair and blue eyes. Well, his wife doesn't. Uh, and so if, if, if I were to say that, and, and for those of you that know my wife, yeah, my wife, she loves me and she has blonde hair and blue eyes. No. That is not objective truth. And, and to say that, oh, I've experienced the love of this, uh, this woman with blonde hair and blue eyes. That's a problem. 
that's a real problem, right? So again, it, it, this objective reality and this subjective experience, they have to, they, they coincide back and forth. So you can't say there that, that oh, this, this God loves me, and then I know nothing about this God. I don't open my Bible, I, I, don't, I don't read scripture, I don't hear sermons, I, like, I do nothing when it comes to wanting to understand who this God is. You can't do that and then say, oh, but I don't have the subjective experience of the love of God. Well, how can you when you don't know who he is? It doesn't work that way. So, again, as, as Paul is saying, what, what I think sometimes our tendency, though, is that we, we, we say we know this God, but we just don't have this experience of understanding of really to our bones of, of the love, the, the breadth, the depth, the white, the width, the height of God's love. And that is what Paul is praying, that you would really understand, really grasp this love that Christ has for you. And so again, when we, when we start understanding and grasping, part of the irony of this is, again, we, what we tend to do is, I want to understand and grasp this love of Christ, but I want to do this apart from God's people. And that doesn't work. Think about, and, and this is, is, would have been ingrained in Paul's mind. Think about when Jesus revealed himself to Paul for the very first time in Acts 9. Now, if you understand a little bit of the history here, did Paul ever meet Jesus? Like, like, like before that Acts 9, Damascus, on the road to Damascus, before then, did he ever meet Jesus? Like when Jesus was on earth in his ministry, the way Peter, right, uh, even the way Thomas, did, did Paul ever meet Jesus in that way? Okay, all of you say no. Never met him, right? Never, never interacted with Jesus in any way. And yet, what was Paul doing? Paul was persecuting Christians, throwing them in jail, right, wanting to see them die. Uh, Paul was actually there when the first martyr, Stephen, when he was stoned to death, Paul was there giving approval of all of that. And, and um, it, it was this, this great thing in Paul's mind. Uh, that's Acts, uh, towards the end of Acts seven. Uh, and so Paul never met him. And yet when Jesus introduces himself for the first time to Paul on the road to Damascus, Jesus says to Paul, well, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? He doesn't say that. Why are you persecuting those Christians in Jerusalem? He doesn't say that. Why are you persecuting me? See, Jesus doesn't see himself apart from the church. And yet it's so ironic that when we, you hear people sometimes say, oh, I, I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe in organized religion. Oh, that's one of the worst things that I hear. I don't believe in organized religion. I don't believe that, that uh, the structures of the church and, and, okay, that's fine, but that isn't how Jesus understood it. And yet we find ourselves too often wanting to isolate ourselves away from the church, wanting to isolate and, and separate ourselves from God's people. It doesn't work that way. Because again, in verse 18, that you may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints the love of Christ. 
If you're going to understand the love of Christ, you need to understand the love of Christ with all the saints, along in conjunction with God's people. You cannot in your own room, right, in your own sort of, in your own mind say, well, I know Christ, I know his love, and and I'm just going to study my Bible 24-7. I don't need anyone else. It doesn't work that way. That's not Christianity. And so Paul, on his knees, is praying that you would, with all the saints, come to know the breadth, the depth, the height, the width of Christ's love for you. Well, here's his third petition now. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is the height of the prayer. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You have to, Paul is asking for something so bold. He's being so audacious. The idea of even asking for something like this. That you would be filled with the fullness of God. That you would be filled with God's very presence. And this is the... Is there anything in this world that can say... That, that God is in this being. That God dwells in that person. Could you say this about any monkey? No. Can you say this about any dog, any cat? Can you say this about any dinosaur? Can you say this about Leviathan that, that's described in the Old Testament? Can you say this about the angels? No. There is no creature, there is nothing in which has been made, there is nothing that God has made that, can, that, that you can say God dwells in them. And here Paul is saying that you, Ephesians, would understand that you here, Long Beach OPC, would understand that you would be filled with all the fullness of God, that God's presence, God's dwelling would really be made known amongst you all, that you would understand and grasp this. That you would be a true reflection of this God. I mean, let that sink in. There is no animal, no creature, there's nothing in this universe that can say that, yes, God dwells in that. And yet, here, Paul looks at the Ephesians and says, God dwells in all of you. May God make his presence more and more felt in you. Right? And so as, as we think again, Paul's prayer. Paul is praying that, that, uh, that you would be empowered to, to, really, uh, have, uh, uh, to, to really come to know this, this love that God has, that, that God's spirit, that he would transform you. Like all of these remarkable, incredible, the fullness of God in you. All these incredible things that he's praying for. And, and we can get into the doctrinal aspects of all of this. And, and here's where it gets interesting in the way, where the positioning of Paul's prayer. Because when you look at the entire book of Ephesians, and, and some of you who have studied theology may be familiar with this, when you think about the first three chapters of Ephesians, the first three chapters of Ephesians, those first three chapters are often described as the indicative. And it's often described as these first three chapters as the glorious doctrinal stuff of God. Like, like that's the stuff that man, you, you need a PhD in theology to really understand. Like, woo, this is like, this is the deep, big stuff here. Chapters one and three. 
or one through three. But when you get to chapters four and six, oftentimes people will say, oh, well, this is like the, the nitty gritty. This is like the real practical stuff here. And, and uh, oftentimes people will say, this is the imperative. This is the stuff, this is the behavior stuff. Like chapters one and three is the, the abstract uh, doctrines, and then chapters four through six is the nitty gritty behavioral, how to live kind of stuff. The indicative, the imperative, right? Sometimes people will say it that way. And it gets frustrating because we see the, the, the doctrinal, heavy doctrinal stuff here, and, and it feels like, man, that stuff is just so unattainable. And then we, like, we get to the nitty-gritty stuff here, and it's like, man, this is the practical stuff, but I look at it, and, and that is just not me. I don't live like this. And we, we often struggle over the, the really wonderful doctrines and the nitty-gritty life, and, and it's like, how does that and this, how do they all connect together? How do we, how do we bring it all together? How do, how do we make it so that those, those doctrinal uh, lofty living would, would be actually real in my life? How, how, do we, how do we get there? Well, notice the placement of this prayer. It's the end of chapter 3 that, that takes us into chapter 4, but at the end of chapter 3, I want you to notice with verse 14, as he begins his prayer, what does he say? For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. As if to connect between these two worlds of, of the lofty doctrines and the nitty-gritty life, what is going to bring this all together? What is going to bring this so that I might live this way where I will really uh, understand the, the, the love of God, the breadth, width, and depth of God, that the fullness of God would really come out, that uh, my life would be transformed? What, what is going to bridge that gap? What is going to bring those two worlds of, of uh, what, I, what I should be living versus the way I actually live? What's going to bridge and bring those uh, worlds together? A life of on my knees, praying. What connects the doctrines of truth to practical living? It is prayer. In the same way that this prayer is positioned to bring uh, the two halves of Ephesians together, as if bringing the two worlds together, what is going to bring heaven and earth together? The humility, as, as Paul is praying here, the humility we see in Paul on his knees. It's not even just that he's praying, it's that he's on his knees. You're not going to find any other passage that talks about the position of Paul, like the physical position of Paul uh, in prayer. It gives you the extent of this humility. And you have to understand that during this time, Greeks and Romans, they hated the idea of kneeling. There's this expression, kneeling was unworthy of a free man. Plutarch, Greek philosopher, historian, regarded kneeling as an expression of superstition. Aristotle, called it barbaric form of behavior. And yet Paul, in introducing his prayer, is unapologetic as he kneels to pray for the Ephesians. Eugene Peterson 
passed away some years ago, but theologian who wrote a book called Practice Resurrection talks about the posture of prayer. The physical act of bowing my knees before the Father, quoting Ephesians 3.14, is an act of reverence. It is also an act of voluntary defenselessness. While on my knees, I cannot run away. I cannot assert myself. I place myself in a position of willed submission, vulnerable to the will of the person before whom I am bowing. It is an act of retreating from the action so that I can perceive what the action is without me in it, without me taking up space, without me speaking my peace. On my knees, I am no longer in a position to flex my muscle, strut or cower, hide in the shadows, or show off on stage. I become less so that I can be aware of more. I assume a posture that lets me see what reality looks like without the distorting lens of either my timid avoidance or my aggressive domination. I set my agenda aside for a time and become still present to God. Kneeling is this ultimate act of submission, of humility, as Paul, on his knees, is asking God, you do what I cannot do. I can't will it in them. They can't will it in themselves. I am on my knees asking God that you would accomplish this. That the fullness of God would be filled in these Ephesians. Well, let me ask you, as Paul is here on his knees in this posture of humility, uh, willingly, when we come to the table, when we come to the table and we see, we see that bread, we see that wine, when we come to the table, what are we reminded of? Who, through his humility, brings the world of heaven and earth together? Who, through that humility of, of submission, enables, allows us so that that world of what we ought to be like versus what we actually are, it actually becomes a reality for us? Who, through kneeling on his knees, in a sense, where we ultimately see it when he goes to the cross and when we think of the bread and we think of the wine, we are reminded of that person who did even more so than even as Paul is praying here. Paul is simply praying in a posture, reminding himself, reminding others of the posture that Christ himself took. The humility that Christ had in order for us to be filled with the fullness of God, for us to experience the love, the width, the breadth, the depth of the love of Christ, for us to experience Christ dwelling in our hearts, making residence in our hearts, uh, for us to experience all that, it is something that could only be done because of what Christ and what the bread and the wine remind us, what he did for us by going to the cross. And that posture of humility that Christ had, that same posture then is lived out in us as we pray and we ask God, can you make this a reality in our lives? And so as we prepare to eat and drink, 
on this first Lord's Day of uh, 2024, even as it's the evening of 2024, this first Sunday, this first Lord's Day, where we're gathered here this evening, and as we prepare to participate in the Lord's Supper, we're reminded of the humility of what Jesus did to enable so that we might experience, really experience, that love of Christ. And so as we eat and drink, let's remember, let's eat and drink, let us eat and drink, uh, remembering what Jesus has done for us. And I'm going to explain a little bit more of what we're about to do. Remember what Jesus has done for us and remember as well the beauty of, of, of what he's accomplished, that it is a reality in our lives.